0: I'm Pat Davis, and I would like to read our scripture text this morning from Matthew 12, 17 through 21. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and his name to the Gentiles will be hope. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that uh, our hearts might be set ablaze again with hope. Lord, as we've lit a candle this morning for hope, may you light one in our hearts. May we see how great a hope it is that we have in the Lord Jesus. And may our hearts be full of joy and our hope in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we have lit a candle. The candle of hope, kicking off this special Advent season. For Christians, hope is one of three main virtues, sometimes referred to as the theological virtues, the Bible repeatedly extols and calls us to. Faith, hope, and love abide these three, Paul says, as he calls us to abide in these three virtues. Hope is very important to us as Christians, but it's not a virtue wasted on the rest of the world either. When your team is down by a touchdown on 4th and 31 with time running out, you know there is such a thing as hope. The greatest self-proclaimed heathen in that moment knows there is such a thing as hope and probably knows there is such a thing as prayer as well. Or When said team wins the big game and has a chance of getting into the playoffs, you know there is such a thing as hope. Did we make it? We don't know yet. Okay. Okay. We don't know yet. So there might be an amen uh, or an anathema pronounced at some point in the service, you'll know. Uh, uh, Hope can be kindled or hope can be crushed. Either way, you know it's real. When the doctor comes in with the long-awaited test result, a patient knows leading up to that moment that hope is a real thing, if only because they're struggling to suppress and contain it before hearing the results. Or when you're reading a book, and it's one of the great stories, the ones that really matter, The ones that are full of darkness and danger. Those stories that stay with you and mean something. Those stories where folks had many chances of turning back, only they didn't. Because they were holding on to something. They were holding on to hope. Hope that some good will come if only they keep pressing on. Hope that a brighter dawn is just beyond the horizon. That this shadow is just a passing thing. The most thoroughly cynical person reading those stories knows that hope is real and that it's a virtue. Everyone has moments where they recognize that hope is real, but most people don't recognize what hope is really there for. Hope is there for something bigger than football games and test results, and novel reading. Hope exists for something much grander. Hope is there calling us to something beautiful and better that is just beyond the horizon. Hope is there calling us to a happy ending that we cannot yet see. Hope is there like a a whisper on the wind from heaven drawing us toward a heavenly Future. Now, the committed skeptic might ridicule this and scoff at the idea of heaven. He might label the Christian's future hope as a form of escapism. We hang on to hope, onto a future hope of heaven, in order to escape the ugly realities of the world now. But the opposite is really closer to the truth. One Oxford scholar observed that if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set in motion the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because they were occupied with heaven. It's not escapism. It's not a it, it was a hope of heaven that engaged with and transformed the ugly things we find on earth. This is one of the reasons why hope is important. Why hope is a virtue. Hope enables us to push back against the shadow, to push back against the darkness, to bring the power of the age to come into this present evil age. But most people fail to see this. They fail to recognize why hope exists. C.S. Lewis put it this way. When the real hope of heaven is present in us, both in believers and unbelievers, we often do not recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their hearts would know that they do hope for and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to fulfill our hopes, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or we first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, No learning can really satisfy. Lewis says that once a person realizes this about hope, there are only three possible ways to respond. There is what he calls the fool's way, putting the blame on the thing itself for disappointing your high hopes. The fool, Lewis says, goes on all of his life thinking, if only he had tried another woman or went on a more expensive vacation. Or whatever it is, then this time he really would catch the mysterious something that we are all after. Most bored, discontented rich people in the world are of this type, Lewis says. They spend their whole lives trotting from woman to woman through the divorce courts, from continent to continent, from hobby to hobby, always thinking the latest is the real thing at last, and always are disappointed. The fool keeps at the same thing again and again expecting a different result, but is always disappointed. He still hasn't found what he is looking for. To quote another famous Northern Irishman. As a result, many people turn away from the way of the fool and embrace the way of the disillusioned. These hopes, these desires in me really have no fulfillment. The disillusioned man says, I'm too sensible now to go chasing after rainbows. I'm giving up on all happy endings. This way of thinking might be the very best we could do if there really are no happily ever afters to be had. But hope, in all her virtue, teaches us something different. Hope points us to a third way. Lewis calls it the Christian way. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy it, this does not prove the universe is a fraud, Lewis says. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else, of which they are only a kind of a copy, or an echo, or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country, and to help others do the same. This is what hope is for. Our every little disappointed hope is meant to point us to a great hope that will never disappoint. Our every small, fulfilled hope that still leaves us aching for more is meant to point us to a massive hope that will never fail. To satisfy, hope alerts us to the existence of a better country. It pushes us as citizens to a better kingdom. It hope makes us longingly await the coming of a better king. In Matthew, chapter twelve, verses seventeen through twenty-one, the gospel writer quotes the prophet Isaiah. That's why the text is all in caps on the screen. It's a quote from the Old Testament. The gospel writer quotes the prophet Isaiah. And talks about how the fulfillment of every hope comes in the form of a person. All your little hopes in this life that fall short are ultimately pointing you to a gigantic hope in someone who will never disappoint. Let's see four things about this person and about our hope in Matthew chapter 12. First in verse 18, I want you to see that our hope is in a chosen servant. Our hope is in a chosen servant. Look at verse 18. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles, to the nations. The hope of the nations isn't found in some perfect form of government or in some social justice theory, or in some resolute-willed, strong-armed politician, or in some uncompromising political party. All those things are false hopes, church. All of them will disappoint you. Our hopes will not be satisfied by any leader who warns that the enemies are at the gates. Fall in behind me, and I'll overcome them. Our deepest hope can only be satisfied by a servant who says, You were my enemies, but I came to your gates on a mission of love and overcame death itself to serve you. Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Why? Would you pin your hopes on any self-serving politician? When you can pin your hopes on a chosen one who serves you. The worldly leaders that disappoint us, that often seem only interested in their own advancement, their own agenda, their own egos, are there, in part, to redirect our hopes. To redirect our hopes to the one who is full of the Spirit not full of himself, who is well-pleasing, not self-pleasing, who exists to serve others, not using others to serve him. Every bent and false hope is meant to point us back to one that is straight and true. Every broken promise is meant to point us back to one who never breaks his promises, who keeps faith forever. Hope exists in small things to point us to bigger things. Hope in bro- our hope in broken things is meant to point us to a mender, one who mends the broken bits of this world and ultimately brings justice to the nations. The Christmas story says that this servant first became a son, a chosen son, not an otherwise ordinary baby boy who is chosen to be someone great, but someone eternally great who chose to be a baby boy. This baby was God with flesh on, Emmanuel, God with us, eternally beloved of the Father, eternally well-pleasing, eternally in fellowship with the Spirit, You could not choose to put your hope in anyone greater, in any greater person than this, because this one is God's chosen servant. And there's more, much more. Look at verse 19 and this next truth. Our hope is in a considerate sovereign. Our hope is in a considerate sovereign. Now, I was originally going to say our hope was in a, a meek king, but chosen servant, considerate sovereign, once the alliteration starts happening, it's, it's, it's hard to stop. I'm not a slave to it, folks. I'm not a slave to alliteration, but every once in a while, the stars align, and this is one of those times. So you get it this morning. We're going to see a considerate sovereign in verse 19. Look at verse 19. Uh, he will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus is a king who will not quarrel. He is a sovereign who is meek in the streets. He enters into Jerusalem not on a kingly steed or war horse, but on a humble donkey. He's born not in a royal palace, but in a lowly manger. We are called to put our hope in a humble king. Again, This contrasts so sharply with where most people put their hope today. People tend to put their hope in the one who quarrels best, in the one who shouts loudest, in the one who owns the opposition, the one who dominates the debate. That's where we put our hope. We put our hope in the one who struts down the street or the one who struts off the field. Most people's hope is invested in the mighty, not in the meek. We often hang our hopes on people who are haughty, not people who are humble. How much of your hope do you invest in 19 and 20-year-olds and what they can do with a ball on a court or on a field? How much hope do you hang on public servants who are probably most interested in serving themselves? who are anything but meek, anything but humble. God calls you to invest your hope in something entirely different, in someone entirely different, in a truly humble king, in a truly considerate sovereign. Every time you encounter someone who really is humble, who really is meek, you should appreciate that person like An art student's imitation copy of a master's original masterpiece. The true humility that we encounter in others is only a faint echo of the original shout that comes from Jesus, the King that we see here. He is the considerate sovereign in whom we are to place our hope. It's at Christmas time that we see this put on display by remembering just how this king came to us. Not with pomp and circumstance, but with no room in the end. With animals for company, with a manger for a bed, with shepherds called in dirty, filthy from the fields to bear witness to this newborn king. This is not the way any of us would have written the story. But this is exactly the way a considerate sovereign would. No one is too low for this king. The shepherds and the animals bear witness to that. No one is too far off for this king. The wise men come from afar bearing royal gifts. No one is too impoverished to fear approaching the sovereign who is born in a stable. Jesus is that chosen servant, that considerate sovereign that we were made to hang all of our hopes on. There's a third aspect of our hope. We see that in verse 20, and it's this. Our hope is in a compassionate sustainer. The alliteration continues. A compassionate sustainer. Verse 20 says, a battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. If a picture is worth a thousand words, these two word pictures are worth a whole book. And guess what? That book exists. It is right here. I have it. The Bruised Read. This book was first published in 1630, so it's about 400 years old, I read it for the first time in college and had to read it again. Was delighted to read it again in seminary. Charles Spurgeon said of Richard Sibbs, who wrote this book 400 years ago, Charles Spurgeon said that Sibbs scatters pearls and diamonds with both hands in this book. Uh, I'll pick up and show you some of those pearls today as we consider these two word pictures. This whole book is just on these two word pictures and what they're saying. First, what is meant by the battered reed that he will not break. Clearly, the he is Jesus here. The same he who is the chosen servant, who is the considerate sovereign in verses 18 and 19. If Jesus is the one refusing to break the reeds, who then are they? The reeds. Jacob, Hannah, who are the reeds? Answer, it's not just Jacob and Hannah, it's you. It's me. The reeds are all believers under Christ's care, who are bruised and battered by the world. Why would Christ allow us to be bruised and battered? Sib says it's because after conversion, we need bruising so that reeds may know themselves to be reeds and not oaks. We need some bruising. That we might know ourselves to be reeds and not oaks. This is the case for all the great saints that we encounter in the scripture. Peter had his bruising and wept bitterly. David had his falls and his calls to repent. Abraham had his failures and made his horrible choices. Sib says that the heroic deeds of these great worthies do not comfort the church so much as their falls and bruises do. I know that I often find more comfort in the Bible's reporting of people's great failures than their great successes, because in sin and failure, we get to see God's gentleness and sustaining and restoring. Remember, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. There's another picture. Sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you once have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus tenderly cares for Peter before his bruising occurs. Before his denying. Before his abandoning of Christ. Sibs speaks to this tender care and says, If Christ be so merciful as not to break me, then I will not break myself by despair, nor yield myself over to the roaring, lion Satan to break me to pieces. I have no doubt that someone needs to hear that this morning. You may be on the verge of a painful Christmas season. Maybe it's the first Christmas without a loved one you need to hear that Christ is so merciful and so compassionate as to not allow you to be broken, ultimately. He will not break you, so don't yield yourself to your own despair or to the enemy's lies. If you feel especially weak and bruised this Christmas, you need to hear this truth written by Sibs nearly 400 years ago. He said as a mother is tenderest to the most diseased and weakest child so does Christ most mercifully inclined to the weakest as a mother cares most for the weakest so does Christ care most for you at your weakest Jesus is the most compassionate of sustainers giving the tenderest care to the most brewed reeds among us. That's a beautiful image. You need to take to heart, especially if you're hurting this Christmas. But here's another. Look again at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out. Again, the he is Jesus and the wick is us. Sib sees the smoking wick as our lives, our faith. Our lives are often like a smoldering candle, putting off a little light and a lot of smoke. Here's another reason why Jesus is the best hope imaginable. Sib says that a man for a little smoke will quench a light. Christ, we see, ever cherishes even the least beginnings. He cherishes even the smallest, smokiest faith. It often feels like my life just puts off a lot of smoke, a lot of sin. If I were God, I would have snuffed me out a long time ago. But Jesus isn't like me, He isn't like us. He sustains our faith even when it's small, even when it puts off a lot of smoke. Sibs warns us here to beware of false reasoning that says, because our fire does not blaze out as others, therefore we have no fire at all. Don't think that way. No. God requires real grace in us, not any certain measure of it. Even a small spark of flame is still a true fire. You may feel like your faith is small and wavering, like a flickering candle, ready to be snuffed out by the wind. But Jesus is a compassionate sustainer. If your faith is real fire, he will not let it be snuffed out. A smoldering wick, he will not extinguish. You may feel like your faith is barely hanging on as this year comes to a close. And it's putting off a lot of smoke. Take heart, Christian. Jesus cares. He cares for you. And he is able to sustain you. Your hope this morning may be burning weaker than our little candle of hope that we have here. But Christ is able to sustain your flame and feed your fire. If, on the other hand, your flame is burning brightly... Sibs would remind you that the fairest fire that can be will still have some smoke. The best fire can be, there will still be some smoke. There will still be some sin. We can take heart that Jesus will not extinguish any of us, whether our lives put off a lot of smoke or a little. Because there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin and smoke in us. And that's an incredible cause for hope. Very quickly, let's see one last cause for hope. Verse 21. In verse 21, we see our hope is in a conquering Savior. Our hope is in a conquering Savior. Verse 21 says, And in his name, the Gentiles, the nations, will hope. This is a great verse to begin our week of prayer for the nations and giving to the Loddy Moon Christmas offering. This verse comes to us from Isaiah like a promise. And in his name, the nations will hope. Will hope. There's no doubt about it. Christ will conquer. The nations will come and put their hope in this Savior. They must, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved the scripture says. God has made it where Jesus must be the focus of all conscious saving faith. He's glorified the Son in this way. There's no other way, Jesus says, to the Father, but through me. It's gloriously true that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's an Old Testament quote. Paul quotes it again in the New Testament. And when he quotes that Old Testament promise, Paul applies it directly to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord whose name the nations must call on to be saved. People must hear because, as Paul says, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Good news of great things. This is why we give and we go. So that the nations might joyfully put their hope in Jesus. We give to the Light of Moon Christmas offering. So that all peoples might have the opportunity to hear and believe. And we know it will happen because we have this promise from God that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will have a place around Christ's throne, will have a seat around the king's table. Does God need our giving to do this? No. Does he give us the privilege of doing this through our giving Amazingly, the answer is yes. He gives us the honor of investing our little earthly temporary resources in his eternal mission and kingdom. And we can be assured of final ultimate success in this mission because of promises like verse 21. In his name, the nations will hope. Our hope is in a conquering savior. So, this Christmas, let's invest our lives in his mission. Remember the Christmas story. He who was rich became poor, born in a manger for you, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich forevermore. Let's determine this Christmas season to funnel less of our resources into more stuff for ourselves And more of our resources into making heaven more crowded. That's the honor the humble king gives to us. Will we take hold of it? Will we hang the entirety of our hope on him? On his salvation being real? On his promises being true? Will we find the third way this Christmas? Avoiding the foolish way of hanging all our hopes on the here and now? Avoiding the disillusioned way of giving up on hope altogether and finding the third gospel way of realizing our hopes were made to ultimately be fulfilled in another world. Our hopes are ultimately there to be fulfilled in another person. In a servant. In a sovereign. In a sustainer. In a savior. You Cannot have hopes too grand when it comes to Christ. Whatever your hopes are, Christian, your story's conclusion will be infinitely better than the best of all Christmas mornings. For all those who put their hope in Christ will never be disappointed. Father, I ask this morning that every heart here would put their hope, not in the here and now, in sports, in politics, in vacations, in romantic relationships. May our our hopes in all those things point to something much, much greater that will never fail to satisfy us. May we find our hope in a Savior who has come in Emmanuel God with us may all of our hope rest upon him knowing that whosoever shall put their hope in him will never be disappointed we will never reach a point and say the sacrifice has not been worth it every sacrifice has been abundantly repaid every hope abundantly realized in the lord jesus May you give us that fresh faith this morning to put our hope in Christ like never before. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.